For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. We are beginning a new study through the book of Philippians, and we start off with an overview of the first 11 verses in this joy-inspired epistle. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, The Gospel Goes to Europe. All righty, good morning, everybody. Welcome you back to your seats. It's always fun and exciting to start a new book of study. And this morning, as most of you know, that New Testament book will be the book of Philippians. Uh, how many of you, Philippians is your favorite most book in the whole Bible? Yeah, it's very popular for being a favorite book. So we look forward to getting in and being blessed. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Now, Heavenly Father, we always like to quiet our hearts and our minds before you and thank you for the Holy Spirit who opens the understanding of our hearts and gives us eyes that can truly see spiritual things and hear your still small voice. So we just pray that you would speak to us. God, we know you brought us here for a reason. You know who we are. You know what we need. You know what you want to say to each and every person. Help us to not miss it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, how did the gospel ever make its way to this little city, this Roman colony called Philippi, where the Philippians lived? Well, good news, travels fast. 30 years into, uh, right after Jesus came to preach the good news, laid down his life for the sins of the world, and then gave us the great commission to go and tell everybody, make disciples of all nations. He sent the Holy Spirit, and he gave us that great commission, and, and uh, the disciples took that to heart and went out. And within 30 years, the, much of the Roman Empire at that time was evangelized. Now, I have a map. It's not the greatest, but it was the simplest map that I could find that just explains what happened and how the gospel reached our dear brothers and sisters in the city of Philippi. Now, the Lord told us and his disciples, I'll start with Jerusalem, take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, like in concentric circles, ricocheting out. And then he said, go to the ends of the earth. And so uh, Peter, James, and John, and the, the head disciples, really, uh, they took care of the, the homeland. So uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria got it. And that's the beginning of the book of Acts, chronicles that uh, story. And then, uh, starting in Acts 9, God saved a madman. His name was Saul, the Pharisee. He's really just a Jewish religious terrorist who went about with his life's mission was to wipe the name of Jesus and the gospel from the face of the earth. But in Acts chapter 9, we saw his great demise as uh, he had a little bit of faith, enough for God to strike that man down with a lightning bolt of love and mercy and turned him from the, a great terrorist into a great missionary and a lover of Christ and a lover of God's people, the apostle Paul. And, and, there, and he began to uh, really 
evangelize uh, the world with a team of men alongside. And so uh, just, just for fun, you know, there, there was the first Gentile Christian church started in Antioch. Antioch was a place that was um, in ancient Syria, but modern-day Turkey. And so right on the border there. And from there was the springboard that launched the gospel into the Roman Empire, and it stopped being just a Jewish thing and became a Christian thing. And so Paul had three uh, missionary journeys, and it was on the second missionary journey that he came to a place called uh, Philippi. You'll recall, second missionary journey, uh, the, the team went through modern-day Turkey, and they were kind of stuck right about here. Uh, and they didn't know where to go. They were prevented from where they wanted to go. And Paul, in the middle of the night, Acts 16, now will tell you how the gospel goes to Philippi. Uh, it came as a result of a vision. So the Holy Spirit gave Paul a vision of a man of Macedonia crying out, begging, saying, come and help us. And so they concluded uh, that God wanted them to preach the gospel in Philippi. So they set sail. And where did they touch land? They touched down there at the first European. uh, It was Europe. The gospel went to Europe, is what I'm trying to say, for the very first time. And the very first place they stopped was a Roman colony called Philippi, modern-day Greece. But it is the very first time the gospel set foot on European soil. And so the first city, as I I mentioned, was a Roman colony. And, And so they just crossed the Aegean Sea right there. And so Philippi is right there, a little bit inland, but right about there you will find uh, the remains still to this day. It's called by a different name, but Philippi is there. The very first spot that they went to, they were looking for a synagogue. They always started with the Jews first because they had the foundation to work with. But they ended up by the river with some Gentile, just means non-Jewish, women who had heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and worshiped the living God, uh, and and, uh, yet did not know about Christ. And so they ran into these women. Perhaps they were singing a psalm or reading and reciting a passage of scripture, but Paul shared the gospel, and beautiful scripture says, the first European convert to Christianity, Lydia, a wealthy businesswoman, There by the river, there in Philippi, it says the Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel. And afterwards, she said, if you consider me a true, genuine believer, come to my home. Let me host. And she, it was her house that became the first congregation in Europe. That's pretty big stuff there. And it was in Lydia's big, beautiful home that the gospel found a place in Europe, a foothold. And then that congregation there was the first Christian congregation in uh, Europe, as I've been saying. It was an odd mix of people, as most congregations are. (laughs) It really is. I mean, if you take a survey of 
where we are all at in life and, and who we are and what we do and where we've been and our backgrounds. It's pretty amazing how God just kind of calls out. That's what the word church means, ecclesia, called out ones. And so he calls us out and he called some people out of Philippi, a pretty amazing story. Uh, one of the congregants at Philippi, and then we're going to get to the book, but you've got to have the context. Uh, one of the church members uh, was an ex-slave girl who was a fortune teller. She was a sorceress, right? And she had demonic power. And she was harassing, <clears throat> excuse me, she's harassing the guys as they're, good, as they're sharing the gospel. And one day, Paul just turned around and just kind of cast the demon out of her. I mean, nothing like an exorcism to start a church with, you know, <laughs> to get people excited. And so... Uh, she was a part of the congregation. Now, that exorcism got Paul and Silas into big trouble because she couldn't do her thing anymore for her master. And so they threw them into jail there. Acts 16 just tells the story of how things got started in Philippi. They threw those guys into jail, into stocks, after beating them severely. And instead of uh, complaining and having doubts about how God could let this happen to them or uh, all of this whining, at midnight, Paul and Silas started to praise God and think about the goodness of God and the privilege of, of entering into this, the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And God just couldn't help himself. He was so impressed with those boys. He just, just wanted to give them a big old hug and shook the place. And they're, they're, they, she, he, the stocks fell apart. The prison doors fell open wide. And the jailer went to kill himself because he knew he was responsible and it was going to be his head anyway. And Paul called for the lights and said, hey, don't harm yourself. We're all here. We're not going anywhere. And he preached the gospel. Well, the guy, the jailer says, that's that famous line. What must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That it? The grace of God, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. If you in your household believe and call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And they did, and they were, and they brought out, <clears throat> got this frog in my throat. They brought out wash basin and washed their wounds and brought them some food. They were baptized. And so they joined the first congregation there, Calvary Chapel Philippi. <laughs> Uh, and uh, what an odd, smotly team of people, right? And so uh, here, now we've got a little church started, and they're start telling the story, nothing like an earthquake and an exorcism to get people asking <laughs> questions. And so they were sharing the gospel, and the church was growing and growing and growing. Uh, Paul, of course, got kicked out of town. You know, what's new? And uh, now... The church is growing. Fast forward 10 years. The three missionary journeys are finished. Paul's been arrested on trumped-up charges. And uh, he is uh, taken to Rome, where he's going to stand before Nero. All right? So it's pretty serious. Well, the Philippians, as you will hear in the letter, have been, they love this guy. And they've been sending support through the years 
to support and partner with him in the gospel. And so they hear about Paul being in Rome, in prison, and they send one of the members from Calvary Chapel Philippi (laughs) all the way up to Rome. His name was Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus came with a love offering for their beloved founding pastor, Paul, who's now fallen on some hard times. He's in jail, facing really the fight for his life, right? And they brought a love offering. Epaphroditus gives it to him there in Rome. He's a, uh, a, a Roman citizen, Paul is. So he has some special rights. So he's allowed visitors. And so uh, he's going to write a thank you letter for the support to everybody he loves and remembers at Philippi. He's going to thank them, but Epaphroditus has been filling him in on things that have been going on. Well, Nero's turned up the heat. There's a lot of pressure on Christians, and it's showing up in stress and bad attitudes in the church, and there's some fighting and people bossing each other around, and the church has kind of got a little bit of division uh, going on. So Epaphroditus has told him all this, given him the love offering, and Paul says, I want to write a thank you letter, and he's going to address some of the problems in the church that Epaphroditus Epaphroditus has shared uh, with him. And so with that, the letter uh, to the Philippians was born. And here we go. They signed the letters first at at the beginning back in those ancient times. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, that river, until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. So God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so with that, we are going to reflect and kind of like we do walk through this opening paragraph. There's a lot there. It's only 11 verses. And true, it's just the greeting. But uh, the Holy Spirit takes a greeting and he speaks life uh, to our hearts and lives. And so we're going to take a look at that like we usually do. We walk through before you in this 11 verses, in these 11 verses, you find three things, just a simple greeting, a thanksgiving, and a prayer. But there's some profound insights as always. So let's pull the verses apart like we usually do and start at the beginning with this ancient form of greeting here. The first couple sentences here, we'll pull them apart. There you go. All right, so you know the epistle, epistle is a fancy word for letter. So it's really called the epistle of joy. 
So maybe that's why a lot of people, it's their favorite verse, because it's about joy. He mentions joy, uh, what is it, 13 times, rejoice or the noun joy. And, and here's a guy who's in uh, a dungeon, and he's been treated badly, but he's able to think about them. He's thinking about his blessings. He's thinking about joy, and he wants to be an example, a good example for them to follow. You know, it's not about all your problems and what you're going through, but there's a bigger picture involved. So he starts out really uh, by saying, you know, he could say Paul an apostle, you know, and he does in some letters. But in this letter, he's going to just say, you know, who am I and Timothy? And by the way, Timothy's not co-writing. Timothy is what is called an amanuensis. That is somebody who, who is the scribe for somebody who's dictating. And, and really, he's just saying, Timothy's with me. He's with me in all of this. Like if I signed a letter, Ross and Barb, it's not necessarily that Barb was writing the letter with me. She's with me. She's my wife. She's... Uh, present in the conversation, as it were. And so Timothy is involved. He's mentioned in six letters, by the way. He is his son in the faith. He's his pastoral intern. And we're always supposed to be raising people up. It's so funny, because I started out as the, the first rung. You know, I had, I was 20 years old, and I had a guy mentoring me. And then I became the middle guy, you know? I became the guy who was mentoring the other guy, you know? And then I became the guy mentoring, the other guy who's mentoring that guy. I don't know, you just keep having birthdays and you get older and older and you know, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be passing the faith to the next generation and this guy, Timothy, is gonna end up, and he is a wonderful man of God, included in six less, uh, letters in the New Testament like that. So what does he do? Paul says, listen, who am I? I'm just a slave. I'm just a servant. The word means doulos in the Greek. It means who, who am I? I? I'm not pulling rank on you guys. Who the the joy and the peace and the and the, the just the contentment of being a Christian is knowing that I belong to God. I'm not just Mr. Big Apostle, you know, not gotta carry this thing and make this thing work. I'm a slave. I am my agenda is his agenda. My, my, my offenses are his responsibility. Who am I? He wants the Philippians that right away he's starting to preach through the choice of his words for his greeting. He's saying, who am I? I'm just the Apostle Paul. No, you know what? I'm a humble servant. Uh, God's interests are, are my interests. Uh, my life is not dear to me. What's dear to me is uh, being a servant of the Most High God. So follow my example. Take the low road. Now, if Paul is a servant, and he's going to call Jesus by the same title, doulos, in chapter 2. If Jesus is a slave to God the Father, and Jesus says, hey, I'm not uh, above washing dirty feet, the job nobody wanted to do in the room, right? If Paul the Apostle, the greatest missionary that ever lived, bar none, on the planet, and God the Son is not too high and mighty to wash dirty feet and say, follow my example because that will make you happy, that will bring you joy to be other-centered and humble. That's what he's doing here. He's saying, how about you, Philippians? Who are you? Who are you? Are you greater than the master? Are you somebody who's running around, bossing people around, causing trouble? Or are you just a lowly servant of the Lord? 
That's where you're going to find joy and peace and contentment. And so he goes on to say, I'm writing to all the saints. And of course, the saints, you, you know, that word just means belonging to God. It, it doesn't have anything to do with moral perfection or doing miracles after you've died. Uh, I don't, never understood that. There's a branch of Christianity that has that whole sainthood thing, uh, but it's not biblical at all. And so uh, he's saying, I'm writing to all the Christians who attend that church, everybody. And then he's going to say in Christ, that, that we're in Christ. That's just a mind-boggling statement that Christians who open their hearts to the Lord, we walk into God's kingdom. And in a sense, we're in him under his care. We're safe. We're, we're citizens of heaven. So at one, in one sense, they have a citizenship in Philippi, like you have one in Santa Rosa, most of you. And in another sense, you're citizens of heaven. You're, you're in this invisible realm that's very exciting to be a part and very safe. You're in Christ. And so he goes on to mention that. And then he's just uh, going to say, he's going to include the leadership. Now, this gives me just as a real kick sometimes because uh, there are some people who are anti-organized religion. So there they like to say, let's get back to house churches and the way the church was organically started. The early church where there were no titles and nobody, nobody had roles and, and where it was just, just the house church. Well, this is as early as you can get because it's the first Christian congregation in Europe ever, right? So we're starting, that's pretty early. What does it show us? They had distinct offices. They had roles for which you had to qualify. First Timothy chapter 3, 17 qualifications to be an overseer. We call that word pastor because pastor, overseer, and elder in the New Testament are all used interchangeably. In fact, there's one verse in 1 Peter that uses all three of them to say the same person. All right, I've got a little chart for that. Overseer, elder, and pastor. We just picked one. We call, we call ourselves pastors, right? And what I like about it is it kind of shows you the function of a, of a pastor, an overseer, to oversee the care and provide oversight to the congregation, and, and, and an elder that we have spiritual maturity. And as I said, there are great qualifications listed there, and they're mostly character qualities and thirdly, pastor, the shepherd, it means to feed. So the primary job of a pastor is to teach the word of God, to feed the sheep. And then he addresses yet another. So there are two distinct offices recognized in the church of Jesus Christ. It would be the, the pastor's and the deacons. And so the word for deacon is very funny. The word for deacon, it means to kick up dust. Konos is dust, dia, to kick. So to, to, to make dust, it means to be running, doing this errand, running to visit this person in the hospital, running over here, running over here. I'm always serving. And it also, also, it was the word for waiter, to wait tables. It was just diakonos. What do you do for a living? I'm a diakonos. I'm a waiter. Right now, generally speaking, there's the church office for which you had to qualify 15 qualifications 
spirit-filled godliness and everything. The deacon is, comes alongside to help in practical matters, moving tables, setting up chairs, and helping with the, uh, make everything wonderful, and, and uh, you have your coffee, and the church is clean, and all of those things, but not always restricted to that. Because a couple deacons, by the way, in, in Acts, oh, wow, they preach revival. So God's always saying, hey, listen, don't let anybody put you in a box or a label on you because if I want you to preach the longest sermon recorded in the Bible, Stephen, who is a deacon, right? You're supposed to be you know, helping everybody in the back room in the kitchen with the squabbling widows, right? What are you doing preaching at the synagogue? Because the Holy Spirit led him to do that. So just because somebody says, hey, you're a deacon, you know what? Yeah, you're a deacon, but you're everything God wants you to be. Amen? I threw that in for free. All right? <laughs> so we got the two. So here's what he's doing. He's saying, you guys, come together. I'm talking to everyone in the church pews, and I'm talking to the leaders, and I'm saying, you guys are in Christ. You have grace and peace. You can go back to the scripture. Thank you. Grace and peace. We have a heavenly Father. We have life together in the Spirit. He's already through the greeting, trying to pull these folks together and get the leadership and the church members on the same page together. And he uses, clobbers them with those two beautiful words, grace and peace. Kapow, grace from God the Father. Grace, that you, a, a slave, a sorceress, could just call out, oh, God, help me, and bam, psh, delivered. The word grace means Leaning toward, leaning into. In other words, you have favor. God is leaning toward you. He favors you, right? And so for whatever reason, he looked at our pathetic, sad life, and, and he just leaned into us and said, man, I'm going to show you undeserved, unmerited, you can't earn it, favor. For what? Nothing. Just because. Nothing. That's grace. And he says, you guys have found grace. For some reason, God called you, said yes. He leaned forward, and he loves you, and he's given you, as a result of that, his peace. The idea there is shalom peace, that just is an overarching sense of wellness, that your soul is safe, and that uh, everything uh, is, is secure in the eternal self that matters, right? That's really shalom peace. It's a peace that Paul's going to write about in Philippians, and he's going to say, it doesn't really make sense, God's peace, because your life can be upside down, and you have this peace that, quote, transcends knowledge. It doesn't make sense. Danielle and Al, who lost her twins, it's a beautiful memorial service this last weekend, and Al says, you know, I have a peace that I'm having a hard time describing. But we're both doing very well. We're laughing. Uh, we're, we're taking walks together. Uh, we're enjoying the fellowship, and the body has come together and provided for them. But what, what struck me was them talking about a peace that doesn't make sense. They said, we can't describe it. It doesn't make sense in the circumstances. Onlookers are kind of puzzled by it, but we, we, we have this 
indescribable peace. And that is what that word is there. And who's it come from? God, our Father, our Father. So as a preacher, as a pastor, I already hear what he's doing. He's already, he's already preached a sermon to him. It's only two sentences. He's saying, folks, come on, there's joy. There's a bigger picture. There's humility here. We're just fellow servants of the most high God. God is our father. He loves us. He's leaning into us with undeserved favor. And he's resulting, it's resulting in this wonderful peace. that so we don't have to worry about death or life, or demons, or, or angels, or all the other lists in Romans chapter 8, because the love of Christ is with us. Amen? He moves on, and so will I. <laughs> Two reasons for thanksgiving. He says, I just thank God. Every time I think of you, I smile. In all my prayers, I'm always praying for you. You guys are partnering with me in the gospel from that very first day that God started a work in you. He's going to carry that on to completion. And he says, of course I feel this way about you. You're in my heart. And uh, whether I'm in chains, in jail, defending or confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. And he's saying, man, God is my witness, man. I, I really miss you guys and love you dearly. And so we're going to talk about this. This, this letter also has been described as the, describing what is called koinonia in the Greek. It's called the, the fellowship of uh, the gospel. Koinonia means what we have in common, a shared life. And that shared life is that God knits our hearts together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. And we are saved from a common <laughs> terrible destiny of hell. And we are uh, going to enjoy his wonderful love. We all enjoy his love and we're all headed to the same place in heaven. And so a reason to be thankful, he starts, he says, listen, when you guys come to mind, I just get happy. I get encouraged. My heart smiles. And he says, every time I think of you. Now, I, I hear that and say, A, I want to be that kind of person that when they hear my name, when my name comes across, they're not wincing or cringing, <laughs> right? <laughs> but they actually light up and just think, oh, Ross. Or, or, or right, I, it just makes me want to reflect on the people God has brought into my life to bless me. You see what he's doing? Instead of sitting there, woe is me. I'm probably going to die. I have, right? You know, everything's against me. I'm uncomfortable in this dungeon and all of that. He's thinking about friends that have blessed him and how God brought people and blessings into his life. Man, you can change somebody's body, but you can't change a, a heart. And a Christian heart knows what to do to find gratitude and joy by looking back and saying, I, I have been blessed. And so he starts thinking about these people. His, his mind goes back to the riverside, and, and he's thinking about the jailer and his family. You know, when I look back over my life, a name that comes to me, Steve Savalich, um, I was 19 years old. Most of you know the story. I call him the wrong Steve. Uh, because he was the wrong Steve, but he's actually the right Steve because it turned out he was going to be my mentor and my longtime friend for 37 years. 
But when I was 19, I was having struggles. I moved in with my, the only Christian I knew was my Jewish father who became a Christian. And so I moved in with my parents and I, I was on the couch hugging a King James Bible, just really confused and lost. And just, I knew I gave my heart to the Lord, but now what, you know? And uh, I was reading all the wrong passages out of the Bible. Right, I'd open the Bible and I'd be in the Old Testament in some terrible wrath scripture, you know, and I'd shut it again and start shaking and just thinking God's gonna send me to hell. And my father is like, "Hey, listen, I don't know a pastor, but one stayed at the hotel. His name is Steve. So he called four one one. You know the story. He got the, the he's looking for Pastor Steve at Christian Life Center. The operator gives him a new Life Center." instead of Christian Life Center. And so he calls New Life Center, and the secretary answers the phone. He says, yeah, I'd like to talk to Pastor Steve. She goes, one moment, right? Well, it it was actually Christian Life Center who also has a Pastor Steve. So Pastor Steve was a New Life Center guy he was, my dad was looking for. But he called Christian Life Center and just asked for Pastor Steve. They happen to have a youth pastor named Pastor Steve, right? So in walks this guy. He goes, I'll be right over. And and he comes over, right? And um, my dad's face when he walked in the door, he looked at me and goes, that's not him. (laughs) And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care which he is, as long as he's a pastor and can help me, you know? So the wrong Pastor Steve comes over, and he's all, tell, tell, tell me the story. What happened? I said, I heard a voice from heaven, and, and I stopped disco dancing, and now I'm here. <laughs> I was staying alive, but I was really, but I don't know. I found out I was dead. So I said, and I can't, and I cannot I can't go forward. I'm just paralyzed in fear because every time I read the Bible, I read about going to hell and God's wrath. And he said, listen, and this is what he did. The first scripture I ever heard in my life, he turned to Philippians chapter four and verse eight. And he said, read that and read it out loud. For whatever things are right and pure and true and excellent and worthy of praise, Let your mind think on these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So I started thinking about those kinds of things. That was the very first scripture. Now, every time Steve's name comes across Facebook or something, you know, I'm not on Facebook, by the way, but, you know, whenever I hear that name, uh, I just light up like, wow, God, thank you. And all through the years, you know, I just, just uh, one more, uh, preaching. The first sermon I ever preached was at Bethany Bible College. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. But I stood up at the pulpit, and I had a three-point sermon on humility. It was assigned to me. And the, 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 um, his doctor, right, the professor, just said some things and took me under his wing and encouraged me to study and and spend my life in the pulpit. And he just said some things that really changed me and set me in the pulpit for the rest of my life. So almost 40 years from his way he dealt with me and uh, how much he encouraged me with the pulpit and, and 
preaching and teaching. And uh, he just passed away this month. And uh, so I'm thinking about him. But whenever I think about him, this, I thank God, you see. I want to be on a list. I want to be on somebody's list that they could say whenever I think, right? That's what he wants them to be thinking. Be on somebody's list. Be the kind of person that just whenever they think of you, they go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So he's, he's telling them this, and then he wants to encourage them, and he says, I remember from the first day you guys have partnered with me, that first day by the river, right? And he says, and by the way, Lydia, he who started that good work in you at the river, who opened your heart, He's going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. Day of Christ means the rapture of the church when Christ appears for the church. Now, we get weary. We get burdened. We get anxious. I've often thought, you know, am I going to make it to the end? Am I going to hold out morally and theologically? And oftentimes, Philippians 1.6 comes to me. You didn't start the work. You didn't save yourself. You didn't call yourself. It wasn't my idea. I went into a disco on June 3rd, 1979 to party. I, I wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for me, and he leaned into me, and he saved me. He saved me. He sustains me. He put me on a path to ministry. What am I worried about? He finishes what he started. You didn't start it. You don't finish it. You don't sustain it. That's what he's saying. He's telling the jailer. Hey, remember in the jail when you said, what must I do to be saved? And, and God just you know, came into your heart, and you felt warmth and loved, and you, your scales fell off your eyes. You, Ten years have passed. You're going to make it to the end because it wasn't your doing God initiates. What did Jesus tell his disciples? You didn't choose me. I chose you. And that's true of them, but it's also theologically true of all Christians. God chooses. God calls. We don't know how it works. I think he calls everybody, but for some reason he leaned into us, and we leaned back, and there was a connection. You didn't save yourself. It wasn't your idea. It was God's. And since it's God's idea... He finishes the work and carries you how far? Three quarters of the way? Almost the way? No, all the way until the voice of the Lord is heard and the sound of the archangel's trumpet blast and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. He says the God who started the work in you has guaranteed it by giving you the Holy Spirit there's nothing you can do about it. He's taking you all the way. Yes, you can not cooperate, make yourself miserable, and not be a very effective or productive Christian, but there's nothing once you're saved. He says, I saved you, I sustain you, I complete the work that I started. That's what he says. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 says, we are kept by the power of God. He shields us. It's his work, not our effort. Amen. He sustains us. So this confidence comes knowing that it's not up to the Philippians themselves, but on God who per, um, preser, uh, preserves them, I should say, and enables them to reach their goal until that day the Lord descends. I love what he says. I'm always praying for you all. He tells the Romans, I pray unceasingly for you. He tells the Corinthians, I'm always thanking God for you. 
He tells the Ephesians, I never stop praising and thanking God for you. Colossians, I'm praying for you. Thessalonians, I'm thanking God for you all the time. Timothy, I pray for you day and night, my son in the faith. He's another centered kind of guy. And I think that's why God can use him. It's just not about me, myself, and I. He says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24, you know what? I don't consider my life dear to myself. Only one thing matters, that I finish the race that God has set before me. And if we, brothers and sisters in the Lord, would adopt that same attitude, that it's not about me and my life and my agenda, but what does God want? You know, that's where true uh, being productive for him will come into play. And so praise the Lord for this wonderful thing. He says we're partners. We, it's a shared walk, and uh, we love each other, and it's, it's just natural because God knits our hearts together. Well, you know, by the way, when I think of you, I thank God. Barb and I all the time. You know, the two guest speakers left me notes. They said, We've been preaching a long time, both of them in different ways. We've been doing this a long time, and we've never felt, they didn't say we, they both said the same things. The warm hospitality, the warm reception, wow, you've got something amazing going there. But the both of them separately, independently. And I was so proud and thankful. Uh, yes, of course. I mean, I, I, would, I would prefer a note like that than something else, right? <laughs> Oh, you guys are something else. And we've shared our lives together in 13 years. I mean, we've been through births and deaths and uh, memorial services and weddings and, and graduations and successes and job promotions and job losses and car accidents and buying new cars and, you know, <laughs> all of this together is the shared life that he's really talking about. It's something the world can't know. It's something the world can't know. They can have clubs and stuff, but it's nothing like the Holy Spirit grabbing a hold of someone's soul and knitting it together with somebody else in Christ. It's beautiful. And now he's just going to say, and here's the summation of what I pray for you guys. He says, here's my prayer, and it's very, very interesting. That your love, pay attention here, because there's a word from the Lord here that your love may abound more and more, and here's how he defines and shapes the love. In knowledge, in depth of insight, we're gonna talk about that, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless, this is all love, until the day of Christ, Filled with the fruit of doing the right thing and saying the right thing, behaving the right way. That's what fruit of righteousness means. That comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul's prayer is pretty simple here. You know, he's always praying that we would grow uh, his listeners more and more. It's not enough for you to be doing well and kind of keeping, uh, keep holding ground. It's nice. It's better than losing ground, but it's not what God intends. The Christian life is always supposed to be growing in knowledge of Christ, intimacy and prayer uh, with him and faith and character qualities, always so. So the one character quality that's singled out here is love. 
Because love, quite frankly, really encompasses the whole of the Christian life. It's everything God is. What does 1 John tell us? God is love, right? So what, is, what does he mean when he's saying, I want you to grow. I'm praying that you grow more and more in love and depth of insight and knowledge and all of this. Well, yes, it's true that God carries out the work to complete us until that day we see him face to face, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. Look at the prayer. The prayer is that we're very busy being Christ-like and loving and serving with great knowledge and discernment and making right choices and doing right behavior. So genuine salvation, we're very busy, but he's talking about growing now in love. And so here's what he's praying. Love is so overused of a word. You know, I love Chinese food. I love Thai food. I love basically all kinds of food. Uh, and, and I love my wife and I love God. And I, I love this weather and I do. But I hope that there's a distinction in there. Well, in the Greek language, you can have that distinction. But if you're not careful, in this society and the way the world's going, you'll misunderstand what love is. And if you don't know what biblical love is, then you're going to be off on a tangent that will not be blessed. Here's a definition of agape kind of love, what he's talking about. It's a little scholarly um, because it comes from a scholar. Gordon, Gordon Fee is his name. And in his commentary, he said, biblical call to love is not affection driven. It's a sober kind of love. It's love in the sense of placing high value on a person or thing, which expresses itself in, acti in actively seeking the benefit of the one so loved. So it's a selfless way of being to put somebody else's interest above your own, to love for the sake of loving, not wanting anything in return. That's agape. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, I just did a wedding yesterday, and... I, this is what I read. Now listen to what love is. It's the character of God. It's being godly and Christ-like. Listen, love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. In other words, love is everything God is in his character and how he treats people. That's what we're supposed to be like. But what's happening today, my dear Christian friends, is, is that one part of the definition of biblical love is being taken away. And let me show you that sentence. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. In other words, my friends, biblical love has a moral, a goodness about it, a biblical goodness, a biblical morality to it. That's what love is. Love affirms what's right, and love affirms and rejoices with the truth. If it's not true and it's not right, then it's not love to affirm it. Now listen, because this is exactly 
what he's saying, that your love would grow more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. He's saying, do not take the biblical guardrails around, A, the gospel, because we have a, a distinct boundary of what the gospel includes, who can go to heaven, how you get to heaven, Jesus, the only way to heaven, but also, my dear friends, in this day and age, what love is. Well, today, uh, what is love? Is it baking cookies for everybody? Is it just accepting everybody the way they are and just being warm fuzzies and everybody holding hands and singing kumbaya? I don't think so, because there is a, listen to me, a moral component and a truth element to biblical love. Now, let me just uh, tell you what happened a few days ago. It's nothing new. It's happening all the time. A Christian leader in a band, he came out to everybody. And he said, listen, for 20 years, I've been re uh, uh, repressing my same-sex attraction. I'm tired of that. I've been listening to a different kind of gospel where God made me this way. It's OK. I'm going to embrace it now. So he's leaving his wife and his two little kids. And he's still calling himself a Christian. So listen, the New York, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it goes perfectly with the passage. So, so let me just finish this out. The reason I'm talking about it is A, it fits in with the passage. What should be our response in love? What is love? Because the world has applauded. The New York Times is running the piece, as is every other major news source, because they like these kinds of stories, right? And so what is love? What is the loving thing to do? Well, the loving biblical thing to do is to say, hey, bro, oh, man, it must have been a hard struggle. But man, you're doing the wrong thing. Jesus calls us to self-denial, deny self. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let them de deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow. We all have crosses. We are all called to repress. Everybody in this room is repressing some prompt that is not productive, effective, or right, or true about who they are in Christ. Every single one of you and me are called to re repress. That is our Christian life. We repress the sinful nature, the broken nature, the nature that didn't bond properly, that it wants to express in, in what the Bible would call immoral ways, right? We are all called to do that. We have to pick up our crosses no matter what flavor it is and follow him. So the loving thing to do is not to applaud the decision. The loving thing to do biblically as a Christian is to say, bro, man, I'm praying for you because you stopped walking with the Lord. You gave up. And now instead of denying that sinful part that's broken, you've embraced it and you can't walk with the Lord and be immoral at the same time. I love you. I want the best for you. I'm praying for you. Let's go have coffee. It's on me. You know, no name calling. Nobody hates anybody. But I am called to prepare you to live in a postmodern world that is changing the definition of the gospel. And it's not just sexuality. 
The new gospel is, hey, we're okay with everybody. And all religions kind of say the same thing. And the Bible prophesied that this day was going to come and that there would be a great falling away from sound doctrine and redefinition of the gospel, redefinition of love, redefinition of truth. But I'm here responsible to God Almighty for those who are listening to me to teach you what the definition and the proper response to speak the truth to this young man and to say, listen, there's a better way. Jesus said, when you find yourself, you'll lose yourself. But he who loses himself for my sake will find life. And that, that is just something that we have to be really careful for. When, about, why don't you put back the, the, the scripture here? Now, now look at it. Grow more and more abound in love and more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so you understand what love is really about so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless so that you don't get led into the wrong idea of affirming that which is not right and not true. And and I'm not just talking about one subject there. Now, the greatest question to ask oneself is not, well, is this a gain for me or is this technically okay for me to do? The question is, is it right? He's saying some things you may be able to discern what is best. Some things are right and wrong, black and white, really easy. Other things are not. He's saying the question is, you have to stop and ask yourself, how will what I'm doing affect someone else? How will it affect the gospel? How will it affect the church? How will it affect my family and my relationship with God? That's what he's saying. Love takes all of that into consideration and helps you to choose what's best in the eyes of God and his people and the gospel at large. And then he says, so that you be pure and blameless for the day of judgment. The day of Christ is when Christians stand before Christ and are evaluated. So he's saying, hey, my prayer for you is that you grow more and more in love and in godliness so that when the day you stand before Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, You will give an account Christian for your life and you will be judged. And he says, I want you to be pure and blameless on that day. So take these truths to heart. And then he says that you're always, your life is filled with the fruit of righteousness, that you're always doing and saying the right thing biblically. So on that great day, you'll have no regrets. You won't have loss of reward. The loss of reward in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that there'll be Christians who stand before God who went down the wrong path, who fell away doctrinally and went chasing after things and and changed the gospel into something that's not. They're not going to get what a faithful Christian gets. They won't be rewarded in the same way. There won't be like a a terrible little ghetto spot in heaven for, (laughs) for people, you know. However... However, there, Jesus talks in different parables about different rewards. He gives one guy 10 cities to administrate over, and we will be administrating over cities in the new world based on our faithfulness here and now. One guy got 10 cities, one guy five. What's the difference? 
It was the difference in their faithfulness to him. If you want honor in the life to come, you have to live honorably in the life that is now. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you. You're always speaking to our hearts, even in sensitive issues, Lord. You've just got some truth for us to kind of get our uh, minds straight on. And we're just thankful, Lord, for your great grace and mercy to us. And now, Father, as we contemplate that great act of love on the cross and what brings us the great joy and assurance of all, the death of Jesus on our behalf. We ask for your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.